0: Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. I'm glad to have you with us. Praise
1: the Lord.
0: uh happy graduation weekend to yes sarah and rj long since yes. graduated i'm yeah. living in a, i'm living in a college town with uh with that is not really having a graduation for the first time i think ever on may mm. you know this weekend yeah.
2: so it's like my senior high school son same sort of thing
0: yeah what, what is the what is the proxy rj
2: what are you guys doing instead they think what they're going to do is try to do an in-person graduation in august so we will see mm-hmm. how that goes. So we'll have to come back from Florida, but I think, I think that's, let's give it a shot, you know, and honestly his birth is supposed to be next week. His birthday is next week, which in and of itself is kind of enough of an occasion, uh, that we'll make a big deal out of that. And then just wait till August to, uh, do graduation. And he seems pretty chill about it. So we'll mm-hmm. see. Sarah, I think, uh, Annie didn't get a graduation from kindergarten, but she did. It
1: looked like get an enormously incredible, what, what do you call it? It was an all-day birthday celebration for her. Um, (laughs) Cinque, yeah. It was morning, noon, and night. I just, we'd made such a big deal because we let our kids have a Chuck E. Cheese birthday when they're in kindergarten. It's like our family thing. And we'd, all year, she'd been like, this is my year, y'all. And you know, she's really tall. So like, technically, we can't do it in first grade because she won't fit on the rods. And so we were like, this is your year. And then this happened. And so we just kind of, we kind of went all out. I mean, she cried a lot last night, which I told my husband is like always a sign of a girl's birthday having gone well. So, <laughs> you know, just like completely overwhelmed. Yeah. Lots of friends, lots of big feelings. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, she. It was, a, it was a really special day. It was actually just nice for our family because it kind of felt like a Christmas Day light. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Aww. Like, yeah. we all sat around in the living room. She got to open presents up. We you know, ate kind of leisurely, no one really did much. I mean, Josh had to do work, but I, you know, we didn't do much productive mm-hmm. stuff around the house. Um, and that was, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm like, <laughs> I come from such like hardworking, uh, in some ways, like not, um, not super emotional kind of people. I mean, you know, it's agrarian folk that like, I'm having to redefine the word productivity because I keep. I, yesterday, I actually said to a friend, "Like, we're not doing anything valuable today." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that's so interesting!" Like, what an interesting land, word. Like, oh, yes, I, know. I have no Our value daughters. Today. <laughs> like birthday, I have no today has no let, value. Let me direct like, you
0: um, to a few different episodes of the Mockingcast. cast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but she exactly. But um, but it was super valuable for her. It was really sweet. Last night we did a. Um, she's a big Jackson Five fan and so we did a pillow fight dance party to the jackson five and that was like the height of living for her so it was really sweet that last week awesome.
0: you talked you were you were sort of talking about uh, heaven you know um mm-hmm. being a place where we really just have to sit around praising god all the time mm-hmm. I, I hope there's room for some uh jackson five pillow fights because that yeah. yeah. sounds about as as perfect as it could be yeah um Well, let's go from a beautiful time of childhood to a less beautiful time. Uh, We're Mm -hmm. talking about middle school a little bit today because... A lot of feelings. Judith Warner, the uh, former Times columnist, has now written a new book with a great title. The title is, And Then They Stop Talking to Me, Making Mm -hmm. Sense of Middle School. And and an excerpt of it appeared in Newsweek. It's also been reviewed everywhere. Uh, And the excerpt is titled, How Parents Screw Up Their Middle School Kids. And this is what she writes. She says, uh, she talks about coming to middle, she considers middle school to be the most uh, difficult of her whole parenting life, not just as a child, as her parenting life. And the reason wasn't that her daughter was particularly challenging. It was, uh, had to do with seeing her go through a phase that I, Judith, recalled as extraordinarily painful. Um, it was, as uh, one mother I later interviewed put it, like death by a thousand cuts. And while we never discussed it directly, I had a very clear sense that other parents, too, were dealing with a lot of unpleasantness that was being triggered by their kids' middle school passage. But middle school itself, she says, has largely the same, although with different technologies. Um, but the one thing, the one really big thing that had changed since she was a middle schooler, and for the worse, was the world of middle school parenthood. Whereas in my day, sixth grade had marked a point where kids started to have a great deal more freedom. In my daughter's world, middle school was a time when parents leaned in even further. They, quote, monitored their kids' activities, both on and offline, and they straight out meddled. Sometimes in the course of advocating for their kids, they engaged in what looked a whole lot like classic, quote, mean girl or boy behavior, ostracizing, bullying, even physically fighting other parents. Parents I've spoken with in recent years have told stories that never cease to amaze me. Adults decide who's in and who's out for parties and even carpools based on how cool the kids will look on Facebook. Uh, Quote, there won't be enough room for a group picture on the front steps was the bad optics excuse one mother used to exclude her son's unpopular friend from an eighth grade pre-dance get-together. And she writes uh, more compassionately, parents by and large don't do middle schoolerish things because they're terrible people. They do them because they're scared or helpless. They feel, like if their middle schooler disappears for long, angry stretches into their rooms, uh, like they're failing at the most important job of their lives. Perhaps it's not surprising that parents end up engaging on the level of kids, trying desperately to take control. The problem is, as desperately controlling parents always do, they make a bad situation worse. What did this bring up for the two of you?
1: (laughs) Well, I keep thinking about imputation and how interesting it is that there's like a whole narrative around middle school now that wasn't there when I went to middle school. And it wasn't like middle school was a great experience for me, but no one around me was like, oh, middle school is the worst. And that's all anyone's, I mean, our oldest, uh, Dave is tracking with, I think about the same age as your oldest and, you know, we're getting closer and closer and I'm just like, why, why do we all have to talk about this? Like, it's going to be a terrible thing for them. It will be hard, but it, it doesn't seem super helpful. It's like when you're about to have a baby and everyone's like, oh, you're going to suck. Like, it's like, I, I, I don't know. It seems like we're not really setting them up for resiliency. Um, and we've already had like some parent meddling stuff happen, um, with exclusion and it's super painful. Um, like I get the impulse, but like, it's super painful. Um, to watch that being done to your kid. It does make me think, though, you know, we we do think of this as like a like a modern construct. And in some ways, the parent meddling and all this stuff is. But my dad, I remember telling me this really consoling story when I was struggling in middle school about how when he was in middle school, he was very into uh, what are the radios you would build for yourself? Transistor, ham, like yes. ham radio, yeah. ham radio. Yeah, yeah. And he so he he had built one. And, nerd alert, you know, Mississippi Delta built his own radio, And um, he was on there in middle school. And he and the only other people who had built them who were, like, actively close enough by that he could talk to were the dads of kids his age. And one of the dads said, hey, are you coming? You know, so-and-so is having a birthday party at our house right now. I'm assuming you'll be there. And my dad realized he wasn't invited. And so it is a bit tail as old as time right that that kids start to get excluded at this age but but i I mean the the whole thing with parents intervening is just like and i feel like we live at the epicenter of that um i'm just astonished sorting is how they call it yeah at how much sorting happens so early and it i mean it is so based in this fear of like they won't get everything figured out and we've got to figure it out for them but I don't know. I mean, we're not there yet. I I sound really judgmental. Like we're not in middle school yet. So I, maybe I will like, you know, I mean, I definitely have a fist fight in a middle school parking lot in me with a lady named Whitney. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I could see that happening. Whitney, Who knows? Uh, Watch out, Whitney. uh, Watch out. Of course, that presupposes
2: you leave the house.
1: So There's like 80 Whitney's nearby. So it could be any number of women.
2: (laughs) Well, of course- I reading this couldn't help but think about my own middle school experience and then my kids' middle school experience because my two oldest are technically through middle school. Um, Sarah, it's funny you were talking about having a Jackson 5 dance party because Mm -hmm. there's a video. My wife and I were looking back through old, like, family photos. There's a video of my middle son, Spencer, having a full-on Michael Jackson dance party in our living room. When he was in like fifth grade and just jumping off furniture, going nuts, like, you know, wildly gesticulating. And we're like, what happened to that kid? (laughs) Where did that kid go? (laughs) And can he please come back? Um, not that I don't (laughs) totally love who he is right now, but, but I, I sort of think for what it's worth, I mean, this isn't worth much having worked in, in youth ministry for a while and Dave as well. And having had middle schoolers, been a middle schooler, I think middle school is more like seventh, eighth, ninth grade actually than sixth, seventh, eighth, like sixth graders still seem to me somewhat innocent, but then seventh graders, it does get a little rough. And I've seen, gosh, I remember once, um, when I was running a middle school program, I saw this girl run seventh girl girl run up to another seventh grade girl that r- like put her arm around her neck and it was like um no who's her best friend quote unquote nobody and say to her nobody likes you because you're fat you know in front of like 50 people yeah. and i'm like wow yeah. that's yeah. a thing um yeah i will say the
1: girls it's like oh lord yeah i,
2: I hope our dear listeners won't take this wrong I do feel like it's maybe more of a challenge to have middle school girls and middle school boys you know that there's a level
1: 100% you know, of- RJ I don't want to interrupt you but I have to tell you And in, in my middle school experience yeah. there was a group of very very mean girls to use the term and they turned on one of their own oh, and no. uh, this is disgusting mm-hmm. but in the middle they had a sleepover and in the middle of the night they put pee in her contact lens no props. they did not Oh yes oh they did. My God. Wow. <laughs> I mean, well, mean, there you have it. There you have that's it. That's Mississippi mean. That you is, know what I mean? That's like awful. we that's we awful. keep cars, we pee in your personal hygiene products. <laughs> wow. Okay, keep going RJ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I I really
2: feel like it's more 7th, 8th, ninth grade and I think it carries over cuz then you switch schools, you go to high school. It's it's an uncertain time. You know, there's another sorting that happens kind of in high school. But what we what we have found is then they sort of start to come out of it and start to become a kind of who a more adult version of who they were before they went into mm. that phase. I also think that this article and another article we're going to look at just so powerfully highlights the need to have surrogate parents in your life. You know, the yeah. article talked about that one really cool mom who stayed up with her middle school girls and sort of shepherded their conversation and helped them to see their friends as other than what was the word you used? Skank? Was that the word she yeah. used? They have a little more compassion and respect for their friends. Um, most parents don't have the level of detachment that's necessary to perform that role, which is why it's yeah. so important to have um people like youth ministers or pastors mm-hmm. or teachers or coaches or something like that. Someone who has a little bit of distance that can um speak kind of unconditional love into your life. Um Or like when I was working in youth ministry, I remember the parents of some of the kids I was working with saying, you know, RJ, you and I can say the exact same thing to our kid, but they'll never listen to me, but they will hear it from you. You know, from you, it'll be a revelation. From me, it'll be like, give me a break, mom. Yeah. Um, And so I think that is, that's really important to have those. Yeah, it might be, you know, uncles, (laughs) aunts, whatever it is, but just other adults who aren't quite as emotionally invested for better or worse in the success of their kid and can see their, see your child or a child with, with a bit more objectivity, um, a bit more distance.
0: Yeah. What I think about when I read this article is regression um, that these parents, you can go through middle school, you can go through high school, you can go through marriage, you can go through all of these things, having children of your own and become a quote unquote mature adult, but it takes a very little amount of impetus to uh, be pulled right back into acting like a middle schooler. And I think to myself, how much of life is psychology? And by that, I don't mean um, just synapses firing and, and psychiatry. I mean psychology and that uh, we're so... Um bound in, in what she's talking about here. You're, we're bound to the wounds we had, the many of which are unhealed or they're sort of only partially scabbed over wounds from, uh, from, uh, from middle school. And that those, we thought that they were done. We thought that that was behind us, but then someone treats our kid the way that we remember being treated in seventh grade and we hit the roof or we do something we never thought possible. And that you cannot understand people in yourself, if you don't understand a, that their will is bound See, I love it. None of these parents are really in control of themselves. Right. Uh, they're acting out of their own pain, uh, and their own, uh, sometimes malice. And, you know, last week we talked about the demonic and I, who knows, but they're, right. they're not in, co- no one wakes up in the morning. And is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to act even more mean than the meanest queen bee or the meanest alpha boy or whatever they're called mm-hmm. these days. Um, so I, that that struck me as so much of life is... Because in the midst of, for example, Corona, I you go around and it just feels like 95% of where I'm at right now is that it's psychology that I'm seeing and 5% other stuff. And that does, that's not dismissive. It just means that what's coming out is just the degree to which people are driven by their wounds and their fears and they're acting out of that. And I think, I mean, as a Christian, I think any kind of ministry to... Other humans has got to sort of acknowledge that people are bound and their hearts, their feelings are driving the train,
2: not their heads. We're all little kids inside. (laughs) We're all still— You're all little inner inner 12-year-olds. Yeah, which is why it's also—and this is, well, somewhat related to what you said, you know, know, probably a few pastors listening here— um, you know, when you're look, if you have the luxury of hiring someone to be a youth minister, you never want to hire someone who's sort of trying to relitigate their own childhood. <laughs> you know, that's always to sort of be, yeah. be the, be the kid that they weren't able to be or something like that, you know, that, and that's, and that's tough not to do. You're, there's always going to be some level of ab reaction. I mean, you do want someone who's compassionate and understands the ups and downs of, uh, of adolescence, but um. But yeah, Dave, it is it is interesting how all of your memories flood back, <laughs> you know, when things happen to your own kids, and the monster kind of uh, comes out got, a little I, bit. I got cut from
0: two different basketball teams, uh, once in seventh grade, and then once when we were living in Germany in eighth grade. It was back to back. I hit my growth spurt really late. You got cut in, in Germany.
2: Into, um, That's low. Uh, oh, that, that is like wow. Germany? In Germany, like you show up in your like American shrimp on your on your. Uh, did you go to your school, Dirk Nowitzki? I told you guys
0: a few weeks ago, basketball was huge because of Michael Jordan in Europe when we lived there. And I, you know, they thought, oh, the Americans going to be the ringer on our team. And then those people cut me and I got cut in seventh grade too. I hit my growth spurt really late. So I was a, I was a small kid and those wounds are still active, you know, and they they color the way I feel about basketball in general. But Aww. but think about think about it though what if that had been youth ministry what if that had been my, the church ministry that I was in oh, yeah. and I'd somehow been ostracized or or scarred in some Cut way by that <laughs> that would that would definitely uh, color how I felt about God Yeah totally And yeah. that's what we see I think with an increasing amount of, we're going to get back to it but before we do this one uh, was sent to us by uh, Todd Gwynap and it's a Reddit thread about relationships that uh, Sarah it kind of made me think of you I don't know why Thank you. (laughs) Compliment
1: accepted, Dave.
0: Uh, This is what it says. Okay. I know this sounds really weird, but here it is. My boyfriend and I have been together for three years. We met and started dating when we were both in graduate school, but I dropped out to go back to college to pursue a different career. We're both finished now and live together, making a fairly nice combined income. Our income is relevant because we could afford to eat somewhere nice when we're out and about, but he always wants breakfast food. When he was a child, his dad couldn't stand eating breakfast-type food in the afternoon or evenings, so his mom would make him waffles and pancakes, eggs and bacon in the evening whenever his dad was busier out of town. It's a wonderful and safe memory for him, and when he goes to his happy place, he says that's where he always goes. Now, my boyfriend is an incredibly nice and caring person. He's emotionally tuned in to everyone and recognizes arising issues a long time before they occur. He loves animals and is kind and gentle with every bug, bird, and pet he comes across. He's almost always willing to turn the other cheek in social situations where somebody tries to insult him or get aggressive towards him and usually winds up diffusing the situation and having a productive discussion about whatever the issue was. Except at Waffle House. Any time we're out, he wants to go to the same goddamn (laughs) Waffle House and get breakfast food. I'm not a big eater, so I used to not really care. I would just drink coffee and read my book while he enjoyed his food. But that became impossible once he and this one cook started chirping at each other every time we went there. My boyfriend complained about his eggs one time because he likes them a little runny and they were served hard. The cook responded by giving him scrambled eggs. When he brought it up again, the cook served him two hard-boiled eggs. I think it was just part of that cook's shtick. And it was kind of funny, to be honest, but my boyfriend wasn't able to laugh it off. When we left, he was in kind of a bad mood and we really didn't really talk about it. Okay, you think it's over? No. <laughs> The next week, we were out getting some shopping shopping done, and he wanted to go to Waffle House again. I suggested that we try out a different place, or at least a different Waffle House location, but he only wanted the same Waffle House. We went in and sat down, and once again, the same cook served the eggs wrong. My boyfriend sort of snapped at him that he wasn't interested in messing around and just (laughs) wanted the correct eggs. The cook then served him a piece of toast with a hole cut out in the middle with a fried egg in it. My boyfriend got really mad and threw the egg toast at the cook, which made the cook come from around behind the bar and throw it back at him. They ended up in a sort of wrestling fighting match until my boyfriend was like, this is bullshit and walked out. Nobody got hurt, but the few other people in there were watching and laughing a bit. This is the (laughs) crazy part. My boyfriend keeps going back and ordering eggs and getting into fistfights with the same cook. It's almost a ritual at this point. My boyfriend orders runny eggs. The cook serves him some other version of eggs. And then they beat each other up. (laughs) I quit going with him after the second fight, but he kept going there by himself. They're like Peter and the giant chicken from Family Guy. And it's the weirdest thing. They've physically fought like six or seven times over this. Oh,
1: my gosh.
0: And as one commentator says, if you've never seen a fight at a Waffle House, you don't really like to eat at Waffle House.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I do wonder if the cook's name is Whitney. I'm just throwing that out there. (laughs) I think this is an
0: amazing story.
1: I loved this. I mean, people don't get in fist fights a lot anymore. <laughs> what a um, shame! I,
2: mean, <laughs> I long for the days.
1: <laughs> and, um, well, everyone has guns now, you know, which are oh, yeah. terrifying. Right. But fist fights, there's there's some merit I thought to that. That's where this like, was going.
2: I thought it was going to pull out a gun and just yeah. I was a little nervous.
1: Oh yeah. no, I was, pr- it's I was not Texas. Sure. It's, just, it's, <laughs> it's like a different era. Waffle House. Like I don't know. This made me think of. I, well, actually, it's been so long since I've been in a Waffle House and I lived at the Waffle House in Oxford, Mississippi in college. Um, so it made me uh, long for for some of the food there. But I I mean, I love this. I thought this was I mean, I guess we're not supposed to as Christians be in favor of fights, but I kind of um, I like the long running feud. There's something <laughs> appealing about it. A lot. It speaks to me. There's a reason you thought of me when you read the Yeah, it's not
0: just the Mississippi Waffle House thing. It's,
1: it's not. There's
0: also a, a something about having a nemesis. You know, people, mm. uh, we're thinking, mm-hmm. I'm thinking a lot this week about Jerry Stiller who died, you know, who played Frank yeah. Costanza in Seinfeld. And one of the many things that Seinfeld gets so right is to, for Jerry to have a nemesis like Newman. And there's constantly to be these petty little... Almost love hate relationships between these characters is one of the many things that that makes that show come alive, even all these years later, um, and and sometimes. Frank Costanza would, would antagonize Elaine and Elaine was feisty as all get out and there's a great blooper that most one of the most famous bloopers of Seinfeld is that no one could keep from laughing when Frank Costanza would go nuts and he the time that he actually got into a fist fight with Elaine <laughs> over she wanted to insult he's he's like only one who's allowed to insult George or something like that anyway um, I just think to myself uh do I have a nemesis like this I, I probably don't want one for the sake of just my soul but um Um, I I recognize that there's this may be something therapeutic because clearly that cook is a stand in for
1: father figures. Um, Right. Well, I actually think everyone has a nemesis. Dave, it's cute that you think you don't have one, but you definitely have one. I don't know who it is, but you've got one. But what (laughs) I love about this is that like usually when we have a nemesis, it's just in our heads. Like they don't know who we are. They don't know that we're angry with them. Right. But this is like lived out like in the streets. And I kind of love that. So this is like not in your head. You actually get to like play this out over and over again. So I think sometimes. Maybe
2: maybe RJ is my nemesis. Maybe. Maybe. It made me think of Fight Club, obviously. I wonder how long it's going to be before these two guys are going to like, you know, have breakfast, get into a fight and go out for a beer afterwards. (laughs) You know, kind of talk it through or something. Yeah. And become kind of like frenemies. Um, You know, er everyone needs an outlet, (laughs) no matter how sanctified they seem uh yeah, yeah this is this is a good this is a good story and it's nice that they, they don't kill each other they just you know have, they throw a few blows they look kind of ridiculous everyone laughs at them and then they do it again yes you know it's
1: perfect it's amazing it's pretty, pretty well
2: cool. but again you have an instance of uh, there's some
0: sort of psychology being some sort of uh, transference happening here where why does he want to keep going back there and doing the same thing he's working something out the whole key paragraph is when he says that it's his safe place and somehow this guy had violated it. And he said that he, this safe place was when his dad wasn't around and his mom would oh, make him yeah, the yeah, eggs yeah. he wanted. And again, um, here you have life is, uh, mostly psychology when it comes to the, the, the why people act the way when they act in quizzical ways. Uh, I, I just think it's kind of sweet that she doesn't like, um, there's something gracious about her attitude towards like, I can't, I don't understand this, but I still love this, right. love this guy. Right. And uh, I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm just not going to go to Waffle House with him anymore, but I'm not going right. to force him not to go. There's something the loving about that. I don't know what it, why it touched me, but it did.
1: Yeah. It's super tender. It does make me think though about like as parents, how we intervene and like, I mean the previous stuff, how, um, there was this kid that if my kid could have had a nemesis was definitely his nemesis when he was like four or five years old and we were at a birthday party one time. This makes me sound like a horrible parent and I am, and I could hear this, like, and this kid just was always at Neil was always in his space and, and I could hear this like screaming and I look over and Neil's just got him on the ground just beating the shit out of him and I just I just took a little longer to get up and stop him than I probably should oh <laughs> uh, this
0: is the episode where we all come out in favor of
1: fistfights
2: <laughs> my son did the same thing there was a kid like a year when he was like four there was this kid who's a year older than him who's kind of a friend and kind of a yep. nemesis and he picked him picked yep. on picked on picked yep. and finally Jamie was just like Jackson if he does it again you let him have it and he picked this kid up and and dumped him on his head, and that was that, you know, because he was mm-hmm. he was he was younger than the kid, but he was stronger than the kid. And uh, right, but I, let me just say, I, I want to push like, on this a little because I've been thinking. I do th- I think your spouse. To, I think about catastrophe, right? To some degree, that to oh, some degree, sure. your spouse is your nemesis. The show and the, you, the TV you, show. You married the person you married because you have something to work out. Like there's no question. Like I remember yeah. talking to a a therapist friend of mine who was talking about the person she married. And saying to her boss, who was also a therapist, "Hey, look, I, I didn't marry my dad," and her boss was like, "Oh, just wait, you'll make him into your dad, <laughs> you know, because oh,
0: that's because so that's, what, that's what we
2: do." And that, but also, then I think yeah. of Esther Perel as well and her insight. I haven't read this book actually, but but part of what makes physical physical intimacy work between couples is a level of conflict, you know. Um,
1: oh yeah, is that mating in the maybe. wild?
2: Maybe that, that if everything yeah. is too copacetic and easy, it might just get a little boring. You know, um, there is, yeah, so, yeah, there's yeah. something about, uh, living in, I don't know, having that sort of creative tension with your spouse. I think maybe you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, but yeah, no, I totally know what you're talking
0: about. Well, the grace is not any, not very sweet without the law to, come. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, well, let's shift gears uh, again, but while remaining on this same subject of, of kind of uh, growing up and dealing with surrogate parents and regression. And now we're going to re- read an incredible article by Ryan Hawkinsmith, writing for ESPN. And now um, the the... The title of it is "My Priceless, Worthless Baseball Cards," and he, very much like me, uh, we talked about garbage bell kids last week, but it extends to comic books and uh, baseball cards. Is found himself in the middle of a corona to be in his basement, you know, uh, wanting to cocoon himself with his old things and the things of childhood. And one of those things is baseball cards. And he's asking himself what, um, or at least the purpose of the is is what what purpose did why does he find baseball cards so comforting if they're not really worth anything? Because he grew up in the same time I did when all baseball cards were just mass produced and there was a real glut. And this is what he writes. It's a sort of a longer thing, so stick with me. He says, uh, It begins Could Ryan Hawkinsmith come to the guidance counselor's office? I didn't even know what a guidance counselor was, so I was clueless when I wandered into his office. But Mr. Thompson knew me. He asked about the weather and how I liked school and how cool it must be to have made the same t-ball all-star team as my younger brother, Jason. But then he narrowed his eyes and just stared at me for a second. How are things at home? He asked his voice, a little lower, his words spaced out enough to indicate concern. Pretty good. I said, are you sure? He asked. Oh no, he knew. How did he know? Everything is fine. I said, we went back to talking about t-ball and football and he mentioned how much he loved basketball. I barely spoke though. I had shut down. Eventually he told me I could go back to my classroom and I thought my family's secret would stay that way. But my name blared from the loudspeaker again the next day and I had knots in my stomach as I went back down to the office. The trepidation lasted about 30 seconds. Ryan, I have something for you, Mr. Thompson said. And he slid a 1979 Topps Pedro Guerrero rookie card across the desk, his desk to me. Guerrero was my favorite player from my and my dad's favorite team, the Dodgers. I'd like to give it to you. Maybe you can hold on to it. Remember, if you ever need to talk to someone about anything going on in your life, I'm here. The sadness welled up through my body and out of my eyes. It was one of those physical cries where your brain relinquishes control of your respiratory system and the chest heaves and there's no slowing it down. When I could finally get out a few words, I asked Mr. Thompson questions he had no answers for. Why are my parents splitting up? Will dad ever move back home? How do I get him to come back? Can you talk to him and just tell him to come home? Mr. Thompson listened and nodded. I don't remember if I ever met with him again or what I thought later that day or that week. I don't know when I gave up on the idea that my dad would ever come back again, but I do recall two things from that moment. It was the first baseball card I can remember, and that was the only time I remember crying when my parents' marriage broke up. He goes on to speak about, um, Ryan does, to talk about the, the purpose that it's, it's the baseball card served with him and his brothers. He, he said that you could organize them alphabetically by sport, then get the new price guide and reorganize them by value. We'd open packs together and share in the gold rush of unboxing something new. Then we'd make trades. It wasn't really about the cards as much as the shared ground shelter we'd found a place beneath the tornado above us where you could still hear the wind, but feel calm and safe. I was the oldest of the three boys that my mom and dad had together, but we all were obsessed in the same way. We'd sprawl out on the floor of both houses, say a cordial hello to our stepmom or stepdad and then retreat into the cards. When I sat with my cards and my brothers with their cards, those were the moments when my life felt steadiest. Um, let me stop there before I want to get there's a second part of this
2: story that I want to read.
0: What's your response to this first half of it?
2: Do you not know that is God it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance? That's just the verse that like popped into my head, right that this um it was just it was it was this guidance counselors, this surrogate father figures, unconditional, and let's face it, somewhat costly love, like this card that he. Gave this kid wasn't worth nothing. It was worth. It was valuable. Um, and through just this simple act of love, it you know the floodgates of emotion were opened. Um, and it's just it's such a it's such a funny thing how in people's lives um, how specific it is. You know, it, uh, it was concrete and specific to this kid. It wasn't just. It wasn't generalized. It was um, personal. Um, it's powerful.
1: Yeah, this, it's funny. This struck a, a chord in me of something that's happened recently. My mom is going through, uh, a lot of old stuff from childhood. I have this kind of weird, and you guys may have some of this because we moved to New York city when we were newly married, I didn't really get any of my old childhood stuff. Right. Cause we didn't have much space. And so I'm kind of gradually getting it now And so my mom is going through boxes of stuff in Mississippi and she found like all my old athletic trophies. And she's like, do you want these? The kids might, you know, think they were cool. And I was like, no, I I don't need to be reminded of how bad I was at sports, but thank you. But then she sends me this photograph of this beauty queen trophy. And I was like, where the hell is this from? I mean, they never, my parents would never let me do like a pageant or anything like that, even though I was desperate to do pageants. Um, And my, it turns out my aunt had like, everybody's got a side hustle in the Mississippi Delta, had owned a trophy shop. And one year for Christmas, she and my grandmother decided to give me like this glorious beauty pageant winner trophy when I was like four or five years old with like my name on it and everything. Oh my goodness. I know. It made me think of so many things. It made me think of how people always complain about, you know, how we give kids trophies who don't deserve it. And I was like, I literally did nothing for this. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's like amazing. But um, also just like such um, such a tender symbol of of love. Like if you were lucky enough to have, I mean, RJ, I love what you say about, and I think all kids, I don't care how good a parent you are. Your kids need surrogate parents. Um, and, um, if you're lucky enough to have a grandmother or grandfather, um, I only really had grandmothers, but that was a surrogate parent that spoke love over you that, Told, that gave you a place that you could talk about things that maybe you couldn't talk about things, you know, at home, um, that, that told you like at, you know, I don't know how old I was. I was little that you were going to get like a beauty queen. trophy. <laughs> it's just like amazing. So, um, while I will not be keeping my seventh grade soccer trophy, I'm a hundred percent going to get that giant ass beauty queen trophy shipped to me. <laughs> amazing! <So. laughs> That's an incredible story. Yeah. I,
0: Yeah. Um, Well, it continues. He he tracks down Mr. Thompson while he's writing this story. It's 30 years later, and he tracks down the guidance counselor, Jeff Thompson. Turns out Mr. Thompson had recently retired after a 40-year career as a guidance counselor at various schools where he'd also become a successful high school basketball coach. He didn't recall working with me at that school, and even the Pedro Guerrero card didn't jog his memory. That was a really good card, though, he said. He told me he handed out cards because there were lots of kids like me in the early 1980s when divorce rates spiked to all-time highs. At the time, divorce was still stigmatized, and I had to fight through that stigmatization every day to try to get kids to open up, he said. When you see a kid who's hurting, you clutch at anything you can. You just want to make a connection. Then this is Ryan Hawkinsmith speaking. He said, Mr. Thompson, you did make a connection with me and I could feel a little moisture around the corner of my eyes. I hope you hear from people like me, because I bet there are hundreds of kids out there who who are thankful every day, even if they don't realize it. There was a pause on the other end of the line. Ryan, I'll tell you, I am in the West Shore chapter of the Pennsylvania Hall of Fame and the Chagrin Falls Hall of Fame back in my hometown of Ohio, and what you just said to me is as meaningful as any award that has ever been given to me. And so Ryan says he decides to hold on to his baseball cards because they were so valuable to him that they it didn't matter that they were worthless. Um, I think that this is what anyone who's in ministry or anyone who's in any kind of relational work or just a human being I th- uh, this is this is a beautiful example of grace over the long haul. That as a kid he couldn't he cried and he opened up, but he's there's a gratitude that it. Uh, evoked for him 30 years later, this watershed moment that he didn't, um, What the reason that that man was able to hear that as such a powerful testament is because it, it came uncoerced and it was the fruit of this one act and the seed that was planted long ago and many of which I'm sure this man never got to see uh, come to fruition in any way. But to my mind, it was an enormously hopeful picture, not only of the childhood ephemera that I am currently slightly obsessed with, and it, it kind of justifies my regression in all sorts of ways, but this is what people are often getting back in touch with when they're getting back in touch with their inner child or they're going through boxes during quarantine, is they're getting in touch with the things that, uh, that broke their heart open um, and the, 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 the emotional language they were using. and um, to me the the yeah that the, mm-hmm. this act of such abundance you know rj you talked about it it's a little um ostentatious i remember pedro guerrero a 79 th- those cards were not mass produced um and uh yeah i just it, it, it made me cry when i read it to be honest with you
1: it's such, i i do think it's such a powerful reminder as as And I mean, as you were saying this, um, you kind of said this already, but as clergy, I think it's such a powerful reminder about the importance of pastoral care and about the importance of just being with people. Um, Because I think, I don't know, I think when, when you're at a church is growing and successful and, you know, some of the fruit that we've been able to see in our own ministry context, it, you can start to be like well the newsletter's got to be good and the you know we're going to our social media games got to be upped and we've got to you know and it becomes these like markers like how much money are we going to raise for this capital campaign and and none of that shit matters i mean it matters but it doesn't matter i mean i i, I think about this priest who um is retired now who who i know by reputation and who like always seem kind of lazy. And <laughs> I said, to, and you know, like I'm, I have no f- filter and obviously I'm not good at, you know, um, lobbying for myself to be queen of everything. So um, I'm not good at being political. And I was around someone who had been the parishioner of this priest. And I was like, man, that guy, like, what did he do? And this parishioner was like, well, uh, when I was going through a really brutal divorce, I went and I sat in his office and I cried uh, because... I felt like I didn't even know if I would have a place at the church. This was like in the like eighties again, when divorce was still so stigmatized and the priest like welcomed me in, like told me it was okay. Told me I was forgiven and loved and offered me a job on staff. And I just think, you know, it's funny like how in the church we can we can kind of go secular so quickly or I don't I, – that sounds negative towards the secular world and I don't want to say that. We can just – we can value the wrong things and, and really what matters over the course of a lifetime in, in any job that anybody has are these relational moments when we're really with people. And we don't know what kind of fruit that's going to bear, you know, I mean, I, I'm and I'm talking to myself as a college minister as much as I am a clergy wife. Like it's you just you're just with people and you and you can't really measure that on some level. Right. Because um, it's like God's economy. I don't know.
2: Yeah, It's interesting you say that because um, what does he say when, when when this man calls Mr. Thompson, the author calls Mr. Thompson, he's, it says mm-hmm. He didn't recall working with me at Ross Moyne, and even the Pedro Guerrero card didn't jog his memory. You know, that this guidance yeah. counselor had no memory of this moment that was so totally transformative for this author. And again, it just reminds me of what Jesus says, you know, that, that when we sort of do our acts of service, don't let your left hand know what your right hand oh, is yeah. doing. And that probably... Yeah by God's grace, the most important things you will ever do in your life, you won't even remember doing because it wasn't right. really you doing them. That that moment, right. you were just a vessel for the work of the Holy Spirit. And so that that lets me a little bit off the hook, you know, because there, there's two ways you can go, which is like, oh my gosh, I need to know every person in my congregation so specifically that I yeah. know what their what their Vladimir Guerrero is. And like, I'm not going right. to make that you know, the other I can try and I will try, but the other option is that maybe God just shows up and works through you um, even when you don't know it. Um, and then the, the other thought I had was how this is another example of kind of can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like guidance counselor is not a career that people aspire to. And I think I think yeah. about the guidance counselor, and freaks and geeks. You know, the long, the long-haired guy who's trying to make the connection, and he just feels so bad for him, but he cares Was it, so uh, much. Mr.
0: Rosso, Mr. Mr. Rosso. Rosso,
2: that's right. With the with the, the, the frustrated rocker who's a Am- amazing character, amazing <laughs> so character. And he's trying so hard, but here it's like that's that's where the real stuff happens. Like it's not. I mean, I don't want to say it's like not where the cool stuff happens, you know. Because I'm sure good stuff happens in cool places too. But usually, it happens at Al uh, Yankovic concert, you know, con- concerts and uh, guidance counselor offices and churches. You know, patently uncool venues is where um, God seems to show up and do His work. So it is so good. It's very, and I just it's love you ESPN. Praise God, ESPN. Oh, someone said, someone saw that once a year, I think someone
0: saw that how on, on Facebook, I was posting all of my, uh, nostalgic memorabilia and they're like, this is you, (laughs) you mean, you mean like a sad middle-aged man in a basement crying over (laughs) his little baseball cards? I was like, well, I'll I'll take it. You know, I, I think that there's magic in some of this stuff. Um, and, and what that article put such a fine point on is not just magic, it's grace. And it's a form of, uh, there's healing that these were, that was what these were tools of. Well, let's let's close by talking a little bit about something that doesn't have to do with regression or at least ex- explicitly. Um, and it's this long article that appeared in New York Times Magazine by Tara Isabella Burton who is scheduled to speak at our New York City conference. We've talked about her a lot as we have Tom Holland. So it's always a little bit uh, bittersweet when I read her stuff. Uh, it's anyway, it's a long article saying, modern life is ugly, brutal, and barren. Maybe you should try a Latin mass. And it's a profile of a movement with she calls weird Christians, which is, um, I'll read it to you. She says, more and more young Christians disillusioned by the political binaries, economic uncertainties and spiritual emptiness that have come to define modern America are finding solace in a decidedly anti-modern vision of faith. As the coronavirus and the subsequent lockdowns throw the failures of the current social order into stark relief, old forms of religiosity offer a glimpse of the transcendent beyond the present many of us call ourselves she's including herself in this weird christians albeit partly in jest what we have in common is that we see a return to old school forms of worship as a way of escaping from the crisis of modernity and the liberal capitalist faith in individualism she talks to in fact she she talks to a uh, roman catholic in this in this sort of in this stream uh, an orthodox greek orthodox and then uh uh she has, herself is an episcopalian uh the Orthodox person she talks to is Rod Dreyer, who's a very high profile columnist and pundit. And he says that as a teenager in the 1980s, I thought Christianity was either the boring middle class at prayer or it was Jimmy Swaggart's hellfire Pentecostalism and neither spoke to me. But when Dreyer was 17, he visited Chartres Cathedral in France while on a group tour and found himself moved by the majesty of the Gothic architecture. I think this is why a certain kind of person is really drawn to the older ritualistic aesthetic forms of Christian worship. It speaks to something deep inside us. And I think it is a kind of rebellion against the ugliness and barrenness of modernity. She uh, goes on to say that weird Christianity represents an alternative to quote, both more liberal and conservative forms of Mr. American Christianity, said Ben Crosby, who is a seminarian at Yale. he, Crosby say, talks about his time working for the labor movement, left him disillusioned with a purely political solution to uh, the world's problems. He, he says, We're not going to save ourselves, God will. Mm. Now, this approach to Christianity may not look or sound like one of the most commonly represented in the mainstream media, but it's likely to reflect Christianity's only viable future in a secular age as a spiritually saturated rejection of the American political binary and the limited possibilities of a culture that denies transcendence. Some of this is sort of Mockingbird adjacent, but I would not include us in this movement remotely. Uh, And yet I do respect and admire several of the people she quotes, including Ben Crosby, who I think we've interacted with on Twitter a few times. It is interesting that young Christians, and I'm not sure how many it actually is, and she sort of admits to that at one point, it feels more like an internet movement than anything else, are drawn to ancient... um, liturgies uh what i hear though is there's a craving for transcendence which is at the heart of a lot of uh, modern ennui that uh, people find when they when they all of a sudden are transported or raptured back to the 12th century via some very old form of worship Uh, but what went through your heads
1: look i know a lot of these people and um Here's what I'll say that I find incredibly compelling. Why? Because I do not consider myself someone who is moved by the transcendence of the 12th century. Um, really, really, they mean it. Yes. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Do you know? It's like when people were like, when we lived in New York City, and pe- this is literally how it affects me. Okay, and I'm, I know, I'm, I know this is not appropriate to say, but when we lived in New York City, it was right when Mad Men was like really hot. Yeah. And everyone's had Mad man parties. And they were like, hey, come over and dress up like you're on Mad Men. And I was like, girl, I don't need to go back to that time. That was not a good time for women. Have you watched that show? <laughs> so a little bit of me, like, I can't quite job with the – it's just not my piety. I think it's the best way to put it. But that doesn't really matter. What matters to me and what is central to what these young people believe and are, are practicing is their they they believe the gospel. They're Christians. Yeah, in, in a really incredible, powerful way. And so whatever gets them there is fine with me because I find it incredibly compelling because a lot of them are new clergy in the church, you know, in, in my denomination. And I find that incredibly encouraging and hopeful. Um, you know, we talked about... Um, or I, I wrote about it, I think we talked about it, the nuns out of that very specific group, the Catholic nuns, that um, not, not nuns like don't believe, nuns like actual Catholic nuns, um, out of that very specific group, I think it was in Michigan, who um, are young and and they kind of are upsetting the convent because they're more orthodox Mm -hmm. right and the and the older nuns really felt like things were going to get more and more liberal and i this group of of young people i mean i've watched them on twitter they really function in that way i mean they really kind of bring the heat um just by virtue of who they are not because they you know want heat but bring the heat to older generations of specifically of of mainline clergy who really expect you to not believe in the resurrection you know yeah. so praise god for that i mean praise god also like tip of the hat because like these are all the people who are leading morning prayer every day right on facebook live and like i'm not doing that so like and i have enjoyed the fruits of your labors i've definitely tuned into some of your several morning prayer services. so anyway i'm i'm all for this i think it's very exciting it's not my piety but that doesn't matter yeah.
2: They believe that Jesus is God, that he came back from the dead, that he's the only God yeah. He's the only way to the Father, like, amen. And, and, yeah. uh, and it is, you know, it, it is funny. We live in a time when people may not be sure about God, but they seem to be more sure about I don't I hate not spirituality, but spirits. You know, like I saw some poll like, you know, 65% of Finnish people believe in wood sprites, even though they don't believe in Jesus, you know? So it's like, well, okay, I guess you could believe in something like that, or you could believe in something that is good and historic. And um, so I'm very encouraged by that. I, I have two other thoughts. One is to me, one of the miracles of Christianity is that. And I think this is fair to say. It's one of the only, maybe the only major world religion that is not culturally bound, which means you don't have to speak a certain language or wear certain clothing yes. or eat certain foods or anything. It's just about the message. Yeah. It's it's not tied to any one particular culture, which is a, incredible. Like that just stands in contrast to every other major world religious tradition. Now that being said, what what these people are choosing to do is to invest in a particular cultural moment, like you said, medieval Catholic Christianity, which praise God, they're more than welcome to do that. Um, and there is, I think the fact that Christianity is not culturally bound allows for this, um, sort of anach- anachronistic approach to faith, which is, which is beautiful and wonderful. And, and, um, um, the, the one thing I do, there was an off repeated phrase in here. The, the, the word demanding shows up four times yes. in this article. <laughs> I was about and, to mention that. Well, yeah. yeah. And so here so here's the the one, the one, ver- the one sentence I was like, huh, Christianity after all has been most successful when it's most demanding. And that was something I also heard from devout Roman Catholics when I lived in, um, New York City, where there's, I feel like this sort of a hotbed for this type of thing, New York. Yeah. Um, and I, first of all, the, right, the gospel is demanding and it's not. Jesus demands that we give everything and that we give nothing because he gave everything. Um, and whenever you have an approach to faith that is very, very demanding and exacting, there's always a dark side. Um, and we don't need to talk too much about the dark side of some more discipline oriented approaches to christianity but that being that i'm just not sure it's true that christianity does best when christianity is most demanding what i think might be true is that christianity does it does best when life is most demanding Right. When Mm. that when persecution is a thing, right, that Christianity grew like wildfire for whatever reason during the first three centuries in spite of persecution, that from all indications, Christianity is growing like wildfire in China where it's being persecuted. Or I talked a few weeks ago in Ethiopia when it was being persecuted, that there's something about hard times that makes the gospel more effective. Now, that being said, Mm -hmm. I don't—sometimes what happens in Christianity is that when life seems—with very earnest Christians, it's almost when life gets too easy, you look for a way to make it more difficult, and sometimes that expresses itself through your faith. I'm not sure that's the answer, right? That, like, life is hard enough as it is, and I think that Christianity, Jesus has something powerful to say in the midst of life's difficulties. You know, Tom Holland said this last week, this this fusion of, you know, that God suffers too and, and God's love in the midst of difficulty. But I'm not sure that that what that means that we should try to make our faith more difficult.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was my sense too. And I'm I'm really trying to be as charitable as I can because I, I I think generally this is a wonderful thing. And yes. anyone who at the end of the day is pro-God uh, I'm, I'm basically think that's...
1: Let's be specific, pro-resurrection. Excuse me,
0: pro-resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a wonderful thing. And, and they're, they are public in a way. I think that there, there is yeah. something when she, she talks about it all being a, it's almost generational, that there's, um, with the exception maybe of Rod Dreher, uh, you know, I think young people, they always, at least in, in my experience as a preacher, they tend to gravitate towards the law. You know, and they they like a program that's strict, that then they can, ex- you know. Um Basically, be told what to do, and that's a that sounds like a really ungracious way to to phrase it. And it's maybe not true of all, because most of these people are, are carving a very peculiar path, in fact, and quite um, nonconformist. However, when I hear that word "demanding" too much, it makes me think of the, the 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 people over the years I've known who balked at grace as being too cheap or something, and most of the time they're young people who think you're you're letting people off the hook or. Uh, too too easily or something like that.
1: I mean, I I definitely get heat with these folks just to name it when we talk about sanctification. Yeah. Because there's a real sense that like these practices lead to sanctification. And I mean, that's great if that happens for them. I I my I I am sometimes like I know I'm all the time like I for me grace and not grace also so for I don't know how to say this. Okay for me there's so much freedom in the gospel and before i heard the gospel i lived such a life of desperately trying to figure out a prayer regimen, and desperately trying to figure out how to you know be a christian in the world and how and, and was i reading enough bible and all those things that that can make us really neurotic and So I tend to, when I encounter these circles of things that have a very prescribed and demanding way of being Christian, I kind of run in the opposite direction because um, it just doesn't, it doesn't feed me in the same way. Um, and I don't mean that as a criticism of the way it feeds them, um, at all, um, but i just like i I mean i do just assume they must have more time in their day or something i don't know but let me let me say something though because i do think
2: i mean this was me they were uh, that was me when i was about 22 23 but because i i I didn't come i wasn't drawn to a very sacramental form of worship the way i did it was i read cost of discipleship and like i'm gonna do this i'm gonna get it now finally i've got my act together I'm not in college yeah. anymore. I'm gonna be the kind, of the Christian that I always dreamed of being. Yeah, and it lasted yeah. about a year, and then I just couldn't do it anymore, and I gave up. Yeah, and I and yeah. I that was before, and then I heard the. You were like twenty
1: pounds. Well, thinner. then I heard the <laughs> gospel. exactly
2: I'm wasting away. Then I heard the gospel yeah. again. Yeah, you know, which I'd heard when I was thirteen. I was like, oh yeah, oh right, right. like right. this is not. It, Being a Christian is not about doing all this stuff. It's about being saved from my inability to do all this stuff. And so I did sort of in in an evangelical route. They're maybe doing it more in in an Anglo-Catholic route. You did it in a more liberal route. But there is something, there is actually something about having tried to fulfill all righteousness according to some law that then allows you to hear the gospel in a way that totally, that sets you free. You know,
1: it's just, it makes me think so much of the gospel this week. I'm preaching this week, so I was thinking of it, but just like that Paul's like, he comes, you know, he comes into the the people, the, the Areopagus, and he's like, huh? The Areopagus. Yeah, however you say that word. And he's like, um, you see this tomb to the unknown God. You know what I mean? Like, it's like just the, the seismic shift. And I think that these people on weird Catholic Twitter or whatever we're calling it, um, I think that they fully have had that experience of the ground shifting underneath them and they're speaking out of that, which is really beautiful. Yeah,
0: I, I happen to, I really appreciate the the term weird. I think there's a yeah. deep aversion to um, yeah. to forms of Christianity that have been completely, uh, you know, annexed by political causes. And, uh, you know, fr- frankly, when it comes to 12th century, you know, uh, a compliment or whatever it is that you're doing that hasn't really been touched by, you're not going to be labeled by as something else. So weird is this kind of third category. And of course, one of the things I deeply appreciate, which they keep talking about this word transcendence, what I, I hear is just salvation there. I mean, cause you're right. We would
2: disagree more to life than this
0: about that, about sanctification, well, it, but the, the emphasis on salvation
1: yeah, as being it's a,
0: something it, we need is a,
1: it's the thing we talk about. It's the thing that comes from outside of yourself, right? That's transcendence. So well, and great. even
2: just the fact that one of them says, like, here actually is a, is a Twitter group or, an, or a group, group of people who are actively trying to make each other better rather yeah, than yeah, just spurn yeah. each other on towards uh, yeah. greater rage or, or you know, yeah. uh, whatever it might be. And that, that in and of yeah. itself, if, it, if there's a place on the internet that's encouraging people to be better and the model they're using is Jesus, that's not a yeah. bad thing. You know, yeah, Yeah.
0: it's, 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 it's if it becomes a purity spiral, you know, and, and it's clearly is not the uh, right at this point, but when we start to saying who's the most hardcore about this and let's, let's all move on this the same city block and, you know, downtown Duluth or something like that, you know, it's, (laughs) we cannot discount the psychological element that then it will, even if those forms of worship are not being, uh, used, leaned on for justification or, uh, yeah. Now, the propensity of the human psyche is to turn them into those things. And that's where I just am interested to see where this goes. Because almost everything most of these people write, I think is, you know, or at least what Tara has been writing, has been nonstop interesting. And I, I can't wait yeah. to see what, what every time her byline comes up, I'm like, click. Well, I thought I'd close with, um, because it it really bears repeating. She, this could have been an article about uh, it was what we're doing, but we're just not uh, successful enough at it.
2: Yeah, we're but, just not uh, New York Times yet. <laughs> Get on that, Dave. What the hell,
0: Dave? I, think it's, I,
1: I don't know. We've been around for wow. a while. I don't think it's going to happen for us. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Please don't let it happen. I think that's the worst thing They're that could happen. They
1: to sooner do an article about Dave's garbage pail kids than they are about Mockingbird just watching it. Or his Praise love of the, the, Swedish,
2: the Swedish music critics who are listening to the Wello sound. I know. Love it. Dave. Um, you polyglot. I don't. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh,
0: let's, I want to end with something she says in there that I think is of utmost beauty. Um, she writes this. She says, in the age of lockdown, when so much of life exists in a nebulous digital space, a return to the Christianity of the Middle Ages, albeit one mediated through our screens, feels welcome. When my husband and I lit a candle just after midnight on Easter morning to sing the rejoicing song known as the Exultet, and the, it, the song goes, this is the night that with a pillar of fire banished the darkness of sin. Um, as ambulance sirens droned outside our upper Manhattan window, the words were all the more potent because of their history. We were singing the same song of promise sung by so many other worshipers at so many epochs of desolation hold up in an apartment. We have hardly left for weeks. We were experiencing both communal connection and a sense that this ghastly earthly present is not all there is. Boom. Amen to that. Amen. Amen. All right. Talk to you guys in another week. Later. Good. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise
2: the Lord.